I want you to look again this morning at verse 46 of today's text, and I want you to notice, if you would, what may be arguably the highest point of Elijah's public ministry. It says in verse 46 of chapter 18, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, the reason we see at least the Last verse of chapter 18 as the pinnacle, the high point of Elijah's career is that it is here that Elijah believes that finally the nation of Israel has repented of their long national nightmare of idolatry and bloodshed and violence. For 60 years, Israel has indulged itself in Baal worship, in blasphemy, and it led to a nearly four-year drought, famine, starvation in the land. You know, 60 years for America would go back to 1962, which is the same year our highest court took prayer out of our public schools. For Elijah, two things led to this joy, to all of his zeal that you read about here in verse 46. First of all, the amazing victory earlier in this same chapter of defeating all of the prophets of Baal. You remember, if the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the fire came down, and when the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the sacrifices, this is the response of the people at that time. Verse 39, And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Wow! What a revival, finally. That's the first reason for Elijah's joy and victory and triumph. The second thing you'll notice is that Elijah prays. And when he prays, the long drought is finally over. Verse 21, Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. You see, folks, this is why Elijah does this remarkable thing in verse 46. Let's read it again. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. In other words, picture this. Elijah tucks his mantle, his long robe, into his belt so that he can run. And with God's hand and God's power and strength on him, he outruns the king's chariot. He outruns him 14 miles from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, all because he's overjoyed about this revival and this mighty hand of God on his nation. And he can't wait. He can't wait to see Jezebel, Ahab's queen, and he can't wait to see her reaction. No doubt, the rejoicing over this rain, finally, and then the repentance of the people that were around her. This is Elijah's spirit of victory. And it is glorious. And you've been there at times. And I've been there at times. So let me ask you a question. How is it then that God's man, just four verses later, four verses, is suddenly filled with despair? Chapter 19, verse 4. And he, Elijah, he himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness And he came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And said, it is enough. 
Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my fathers. Wow. What a descent. What a fall. I mean, folks, you talk about a quick change from victory to defeat. This is an astonishing reversal for a mighty prophet. And this is God's response to Elijah when he finally speaks to him in the next chapter, chapter 19, verse 9. And he came thither into a cave and he lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here? It's an amazing story. It's so amazing that James, our Lord's brother, points to the very same story in his own epistle when he's warning about the perils and the pitfalls and unnecessary presence of defeatism and pity. For any child of God, much less any man of God, defeatism is uncalled for and alien in the Christian life. No believer should ever find himself sitting under the juniper tree or sitting in the cave with Elijah. Let's pray. Father, please help us to understand why it is this story that is held up in the New Testament and this man more than once and why you gave us this story in your word for us to learn to be admonished by. I pray we will. Help us all, Lord, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. We mentioned a moment ago that the story of Elijah, the man himself, is held up in the New Testament as an example for all of us here in this room to learn from. And of course, specifically, it is found in the New Testament book of James, where it says these words in James 5 and verse 17. Elias, Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. Now, of course, You'll notice the point here that James is making. Yes, Elijah was a man of God. Yes, Elijah was brave and faithful and courageous. Yes, he could pray down a drought. He could pray down rain. He could pray down fire if that was God's will, and he did. However, he was still a man of emotion. This is a man with feelings and with moods. And you know what? It made him subject. We just read the the Scripture in James 5. Elias was a man subject, subjected to like passions as we are. Like as we are. And of course, it is because of this human distinction that almost all Bible students and commentators agree that what James was alluding to was what Elijah did and said in the days following his prayer for rain. Here in our text, the last line of verse 4, Elijah says what? Lord, it's enough. Literally, I've had enough. And now I request, I would, that you would just take my life and let me die right here. Now, you talk about passions. The word passion that I read about a moment ago in James chapter 5, it says, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. The Greek word there is pathos. Pathos means, quote, that which invokes sadness or despair. The Greek prefix simply means to suffer. So they'll know this, pathos, homeopathos in James 5 means self-suffer. 
It is a feeling of personal defeat or hopelessness. And I'm telling you this morning that the reason James points to Elijah as exhibit A is that it is a reminder to all of us here that nobody in this flesh, none of us, are immune to the insidious attack of defeatism and despair. I'm going to remind you that for the Jews, Elijah was their greatest hero. Not just because in the book of Malachi, Malachi, it promised a comeback for Elijah. Not just because Elijah won the Super Bowl, World Series, National Championship of battles against idolatry, which he did. Not just because his prayers saved the nation from extinction, but also because of Elijah's personality, his courageous, bold, and optimistic spirit. To this day, if you've ever attended a Passover celebration with one of our Jewish neighbors, as I did one time. You have seen the symbolic open door that they have in their home and then the empty chair at that table. That seat, that empty seat is for Elijah, whose return signals the doom of Israel's enemies and the restoration of the Messianic kingdom. James That we read from a moment ago, James was as Jewish as they come in all of the Bible. And yet it was he who wrote Elijah was a man. Not a God. Not an angel. Not a demigod. He said Elijah was a man. Furthermore, he was a man with the same pathos. The same kind of passions in our flesh that you have and that I have. He was subjected to those same passions. So here's our hero. Right on the heels of this incredible victory, there on the top of Mount Carmel, calling fire down from heaven, his touchdown celebration lasted for 14 miles. There's victory, and there's repentance, and there's glory, and there's hope. But within hours, literally within hours, before the embers on the top of Mount Carmel even grow cold, and before the blessed rain has a chance to saturate The altars of God, all of Elijah's hopes and all of his expectations are crushed with a single sentence from one woman named Jezebel. Chapter 19, verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. You see, folks, the reason for Elijah's defeatism, the cause for his feeling sorry for himself, right here in these early stages, is that like passions, the like passion that we all have in this room, came to him just like they come to all of us. His hopes that were so high were crushed. His plans and his expectations were disappointed. His mountaintop experience has now turned into this valley of defeat because of a crazy woman with a sword in her hand and some power. And as he runs to Beersheba, he says to himself, I've had enough. Elijah, I've had enough of this stuff. I can't take any more of this. I'm just going to sit here until I die. Woe is me, Elijah says. And he embraces the spirit of defeatism, which is the very same, very dangerous territory 
that Satan wants all of us to travel to. There are three lessons in this text. The first one is the most obvious. It's a lesson, number one, about Elijah's humanity. What did James say? Elijah was a man. And what did this man do in chapter 19 and verse 4? It says, look at it, it says he traveled a day's journey. That's Bible speak that means that Elijah walked. And he walked about 20 miles into the desert of Arabia. Now remember, hear this, that walking, this particular journey, is right on the heels of his 14-mile run that he just did. Remember, he was all excited. He's running for 14 miles. He beats the chariot. And now he takes a day's journey. You can see, beloved, that in addition to the already exhausting contest on the top of Mount Carmel, emotionally, physically, spiritually, he has spent. That Elijah now adds the physically demanding experience of traveling all these long distances by foot. And it's there in the desert. After all of that, hungry and weary and faint in the sun's heat, that this man Elijah reminds us of his and our own human frailty, physically and emotionally. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. Elijah, who appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah, who raised the dead child to life at Zarephath. Elijah, instead of, instead, who instead of dying, was caught up in a whirlwind into glory. Folks, you would think, wouldn't you? You would think that Elijah is above the human tendency to defeatism. How can a man like Elijah feel so sorry for himself that he would sit there and ask God to just go ahead and take his life? Well, I can tell you one thing. Elijah's not alone in that sentiment. Matter of fact, he's in very good company. Moses did the same thing. So did Jonah. So did Job, the most righteous man at the time on the earth. You see, beloved, it's not only that everybody in this room is prone to defeatism and despair. It is instead that everybody in this room has indulged in it. We have all found ourselves in that place because it is part of the fabric of fallen creation. I wonder how many of you remember after 9-11 how that in the rubble of all of those towers falling down there was that horrible sound. You can Google it now and listen to it. Not right now, please, okay? And it was that horrible sound of all of those chirpers worn by firemen and first responders. You know, they, they would wear these things called pass devices. Personal alert safety devices. And after, after the bombs and after the, the planes and it all fell, there were 343 of them going off at the same time. Part of the 2,753 bodies in that rubble. And so with a measure of hope, these rescue dogs were brought in only to discover hour after hour after hour 
and then sunset, and then sunrise, and hours passed, only to discover as those chirpers started 343, it was 342, 340, 320, they started fading away. There were no bodies to discover. And those trained dogs, after two days of searching, they said they got depressed, lethargic, even depressed, even despaired. And you may remember what they did. They would actually take a live body, a volunteer, and they would go hide them in the rubble so that the dog could actually find somebody. And when they did, they were encouraged again. And I remember reading that story and thinking about this fallen world that is part of the fabric of our, our, our fallen creation. Jeremiah the prophet I mentioned Jonah outside Nineveh, the psalmist David, the great apostle Paul, and I just taught our teenagers in Sunday school a few moments ago that Paul wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, but yet it was Paul himself. He said that at one point he despaired even of life. That's Elijah's humanity, and it's mine. And it's yours. It leads us to the second observation. Number one, Elijah's humanity. Number two, you'll notice, Elijah's haste. Here's the mistake we all make. Chapter 19, verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them, one of the prophets that was slain, by tomorrow about this time. That's her threat. I'm going to kill you. And when he saw that, when Elijah saw that, he arose and went for his life. In other words, follow this, the very first action and reaction of Elijah to this news of Jezebel is defeatism. The first thing he does is basically just give up. So that again, just like all of us here, Elijah was way too quick to accept the rantings of one woman over the promises of the one true God. And then, of course, he compounds that defeatism by thinking that he's all alone and then chooses to be alone in his despair. You know, solitude is sometimes a very good thing. Ministry itself requires a certain level of solitude and it necessitates being alone as our Lord demonstrated. But I'm going to tell you something. Hear this very carefully. Choosing to be alone for the purpose of defeatism is exactly the wrong time to be alone. When someone in a church decides to feel sorry for himself, one of the first things they do typically is avoid the fellowship of other Christians and other believers. And it's a folly. It's a mistake. Elijah went alone to mull over Jezebel's threats and hatred. Jezebel, you remember, didn't just say, hey, I'm going to use my power and my resources to kill you, Elijah. What she actually said is by the gods. She took an oath by her fake idols who were powerless and proven to be so just hours before this. She said, I promise you. Elijah should have ignored her threats and the oath of her gods and just remembered the power and the present and the promises of God, which is what you should do. 
in the very moment of your despair and defeatism. Elijah should have done what all of us should do in the face of criticism and opposition and threats. What he should have done is considered the source. He kept the faith. He's not alone. He is alone now and he's tired and he's hungry and he's discouraged. And in that place, just like we all do, he's thinking too much. Without the influence of the Spirit and other godly people around him. And you know what happens? He goes to a cave and he hides in that cave and he says, Lord, it's enough. I've had enough. I want to die. I'm all alone. I'm going to say it again. Listen, how is it possible that a man as courageous, and he was, a man as courageous and discerning as Elijah thinks that he's all alone. It's just me. All alone in the world. He's the only one serving God. And he's the only one suffering for God in this way. I can tell you how it happens. Defeatism. People who feel sorry for themselves always come to the conclusion that nobody cares. Nobody understands. Nobody knows what they're going through. And then they think, since I'm the only one left, they'll all be sorry when I'm gone. They'll all be sorry when I die. They'll all know that I'm the only one when I'm finally gone, and I'll show them, really? So that one of the most deceptive aspects of defeatism is that it creates around yourself a world all your own. It's just me. You know, Helen Keller who was no stranger to affliction and trials. It's one thing to be blind. It's another thing to be deaf. But she was both. She once wrote these words about not feeling sorry for herself. She said, Defeatism always is always our worst enemy. If we yield to it, we can never do anything good in the world, for in self-pity you live in your own world. Man, how true that is. I... Even I only am left, Elijah said. Just me. So that, you know what? Like all of us who've ever wallowed in defeatism, he focused on himself and just himself. He said, think about this, he said that he wanted to die, but he really didn't. Why else is he running from the one who wants to kill him? And why is he sitting under a juniper tree? The juniper tree is the only one in the desert that gives enough shade in order to keep you alive. I have a preacher friend in California. We were roommates in Bible college. He's preached here, Mike Ray. And I remember one day, many, many years ago, in the old building, I was complaining about some stuff, people. I think it was Kevin Luce. I don't know. I don't remember, but it was somebody. <laughs> but I was feeling sorry for myself. And I was in the office, and I was going through the mail at the church, and I was looking at these various addresses, and I noticed a letter from Mike Ray, my buddy all the way from Napa Valley, and he's still pastoring there, and I don't remember what the letter was about, didn't really care, but I remember what the envelope said. The address on the outside of the envelope said, Pastor Jim Blaylock, P.O. Box 424, Juniper, Florida. (laughs) I thought, ooh. I don't know, I think it was a typo, I don't know. But I remember thinking to myself, don't be an Elijah in this moment. His humanity and his hate, his haste. The third thing I want you to notice is Elijah's hope. Look at verse 5, chapter 19. 
And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink and laid him down again. Sounds like Thanksgiving Day for some of you guys, amen? <laughs> Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, second breakfast, and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. Wow, journey? God has a plan for him. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Amen. And said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here? Hey, think about this for a moment. Elijah's punishment, chastisement for his doubts and his fears and his defeatism was food and rest. More food and more rest. And then, when he's able to hear the Word of God, and the Word of God comes to him, it comes in the form of a question. I remember again what James said. James said that Elijah was a man subject to like passions. He had the same pathos as all of us. But, let me read the rest of the verse. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and... He prayed. And he prayed again. Now I have a question. Who did he pray to? He prayed to the one true God. The same God who remembers that we are dust. The same God who knoweth our frame. Psalm 103. The same God who was touched with the feelings of of our infirmities, Hebrews 4.15. Jesus came in the form of flesh. God did so that he could know the pathos. He could be touched with the same feelings of our infirmities. The same God who heard Elijah's prayers to stop the rain, to bring down the rain, to call down the fire on the sacrifices, this is the same God who gave God a request in verse 4. Look at it again. It says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested, that's a prayer, folks, he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord. Well, let me ask you a question. He prayed, prayed down rain, God gave it. He prayed down fire, and God gave it. He prayed over a lifeless boy's body and God raised him up. Why didn't God answer this obviously earnest and fervent prayer? God, take my life. Well, God did answer it. And the answer was no. The answer was from the Heavenly Father. In fact, it was an emphatic no. Because instead of God taking his life, he saved his life. He sent his angel to wake him up and told him to eat. He sent his angel again and woke him up again and told him to eat some more and go back to sleep. Aren't you glad, by the way, that God doesn't always give us what we ask for the moment we ask for it? Especially in our despair. The one thing, think about this, this is not an accident. 
The one thing that Elijah was asking for here, death, was the very thing that God had ordained that Elijah uniquely would miss out on. Elijah was translated. He went up in a whirlwind so he would not even see death. God having something eternally better for Elijah was full of mercy at this scene. He didn't really scold Elijah. He didn't rebuke. He didn't chasten his servant. Not here. Not in this moment. The command was arise and eat. And he just gave him angels food and lots of rest. And then finally when he was in a better situation, both physically and emotionally in that cave, God just says, Elijah, what are you doing here? You don't belong in a place of defeatism. I understand that's a tacit reproof from our God, but it's also a very, very merciful one. What are you doing here? What good is it for a prophet of God to be out in the wilderness or in a cave wasting away under a juniper tree? And of course, that's what defeatism does. That's why some of these seats are empty in these pews that used to be filled with believers that were faithful at one time. Defeatism always leads you to a place where there's nothing to do. It takes you out of action and puts you on the bench. And God says, what are you doing here? Go out there. Go forth, Elijah, out of the darkness of this cave and stand in light of day. I've given you the bread of life. I've given you living water. Now I'm giving you some light. Go. Go out. And in addition to that, let me correct something. Let me correct your incorrect view about the state of the spiritual union in Israel. And God says, Elijah, I have 7,000 people who haven't bowed before Baal. You think you're the only one who risked life and limb by not bowing? There are at least 7,000. In other words, God says, you're not alone. You were never alone. It's as if God is saying to his servant, Elijah, I'm concerned about your hurts. I'm concerned and I know about the threats and the injustices against you, but I don't want you to be concerned about it. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Stop going around collecting so-called offenses and start counting your blessings and I will help you, God says, and we'll start with a number, the number 7,000. You see, folks, everything that Elijah said to God in his pathos, everything that he said to God in his emotion and his passion, it was almost all factually true. Elijah was jealous for the Lord God of hosts. That was true. And the children of Israel did forsake the covenant of God, just like our nation has done since 1962, and that is true. And they did throw down the altars. And yes, they did kill the prophets with the sword at the hand of Jezebel. And yes, Jezebel is now seeking his life. It's all true. All of that was factually true. What was not true was the whole defeatism part. That was never true. The I part. The I, even I, only am left. Nor was it true that Jezebel could kill Elijah outside the will of God. In other words, folks, God's cure for Elijah's defeatism was first to get him some food and rest, 
and more food and rest. You know, sometimes a good night's rest changes your perspective. He was exhausted after all that had gone through. But his second step was remind Elijah of the truth. And God wants to remind you of the truth in the face of all of Satan's lies. In other words, get out of the cave that you're in. Some of you watching right now by live stream, you're in that cave. That's your choice. Get out, God says. What are you doing here? And look at the whole picture. Stop looking at the mirror all of the time and look instead at the power and the presence and the promises of God. Pastor, my people may never win another election. Okay. So what? Paul's people weren't even given a chance to have an election. We're blessed to even get the chance. But pastor, people are crazy. Oh. <laughs> you have, may have noticed we have all these sophisticated radars on the mountaintops all over our country looking for intelligent life. None of them are appointed at earth. Have you noticed that? <laughs> People are crazy. The Jezebels, their stupidity is real. It's real. It's a fact. You know, we as Christians, we can sometimes look at the facts like Elijah did. Start on a path of defeatism. Because in looking at some facts, you miss the truth. What is the truth, Pastor? The truth is that God is always on His throne that God is always in control. The truth is that God always, always has a remnant. The truth is that no Christian is ever, ever all alone in your trials or your afflictions ever. The truth is that God always wants to bring His own out of the dark cave of defeatism and into the victorious light of service and gratitude and faith and hope and blessing. Christians don't belong under the juniper tree. They don't belong in a cave of defeatism. They belong, as all of God's children, in a place of hope and victory. Question. Wherever you are right now, what are you doing there? And I'm sure of this. I'm sure God would send His angel and touch you and give you some food and some rest and touch you again, wake you up, and then ask you this question. What are you doing here? Again, some of you watching where you are, what are you doing there? You're a child of the living God. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for just a moment. I wonder who might say this morning, Pastor Blaylock, I, I am a Christian. I am a child of the living God. But I needed this reminder this morning. Look, folks, Elijah was a man subjected to like passions as we are. If he can be defeated, embrace, and wallow in Self-pity, so can you and I. Pastor Blake, I'm here today and I just needed this reminder today. Because I'm, I'm going to tell you something, folks. You either now, you either were, or right now, or you will be going through a time of despair. It's one or the other. Pastor Blake, I'm saved, but I needed this message and reminder. God to speak to my heart. Who would say that? Will you lift your hands up through the building? Amen and amen. God bless you. Think about the juniper tree next time. And the blessing 
of a merciful God who loves you as a father, who didn't smite Elijah. He's not smiting you in your despair. He's reminding you of who you are. In a group this size, there would be some, if not several, watching by live stream as well, who are not children of the Most High God. In other words, you've never been born into God's family. Jesus said you must be. You must be born again if you're to see the kingdom of God. You're born in the flesh. You must be born in the spirit. How does that happen? You accept Jesus Christ, God's son, who died on the cross for you as your savior. And then a miracle happens. It's a new birth. It's a spiritual birth. That's not happened to you because you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your savior. Maybe you're religious. It doesn't matter. You need to be, you need to be born again, Jesus said. Pastor, that's me. I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure I've ever been born again. Would you pray for me? How many of you would say that? Would you lift your hands? I won't embarrass you. I won't come to you, but I pray for you. I'm not sure, but I want to be sure. I need to be sure. God bless you. I see your hand. Yes, sir. We're going to pray in a moment and have a time of invitation. And it would just do you, your family, your church, your country. A great, great service to walk out of these doors recognizing that defeatism is of the devil. It's not of God. As we often say here, we're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory. Jesus won the battle. Walk out of these doors in victory. And that victory is by faith. Father, bless the invitation. Thank you again for this opportunity as we prayed at the beginning of the service that you would use it in our hearts and our lives. That no, no child of yours, none of us, Father, have any place wallowing in self-pity and defeatism. That we're even commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. And I pray we will have that truth brought home to our hearts and our minds. For these who have for prayer, Lord, bless them. And bring them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.